Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we were, we've been now entering the phase in Nehemiah's uh, building the wall where there's opposition. Opposition. Sometimes as believers we forget that opposition is part of the process of sanctification. In light of everything that's happening in the world, especially over in Europe, the Europe area, I'm going to actually share with you an illustration I have before. In 1942, Joseph Stalin, then leader of the Soviet Union, banished more than 200,000 Crimean, Crimean uh, from their homes on the Black Sea. And that's been in the news lately, as far as that area. They were not permitted back into their homeland in mass until the early 90s, when the Soviet Union finally broke apart for the first time. Unfortunately, since their homes had been confiscated by others, it was interesting to find out, when they were told to leave, they were only given a half hour. The uh, signs were coming, but when it finally came, it was like, you're out of here. They couldn't pretty much bring anything. And so, others confiscated their homes. The Crimeans were forced to rebuild their entire settlements when they came back in the 90s, during the cold winter of 1990-91. to 91. The author who's telling this story relayed the fact that when they came back, instead of each man building their own home, they literally worked in what they call brigadas or brigades. So they were able to rapidly build a home for this person and then live there and then rapidly build a home for themselves and that's how they did it. Bill Taylor writes of this incident, the same thing happens when it comes to the coordination of any type of energy, it's synergy. Uh, Working together produces synergy. In other words, the output is greater than the sum of its parts. And and you've heard this before, Uh, two draft horses can pull four ton. You put two draft horses, I mean a draft horse apiece. If you put two together, it's, it's more than 20 ton. Because it's the coordination of energy, the coordination of, of uh, two horses working together. But again, that has a lot of um, play into the, the Christian life. We are called to work together. That's the whole concept of the body. That's the whole concept of the body ministry. And, and I believe that the enemy, Satan, wants to destroy that coordination. Now again, you saw the coordination in, the, in chapter 3. Each man had its, each leader had their part of the wall to build, and they would then bring other people into their unit, their group, their, their, uh, their um, segment on the wall to build it. And there was a coordination of energy, and, and in a very short time, half the wall was built. But as soon as things start going forward for, in God's work, the enemy, plant, uh, the enemy Satan plants enemies' people, and we see that... Uh, they're trying to destroy the coronation, and that's what we got to in chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry. Verse 1. He was angry, he was greatly enraged, and when you get angry and greatly enraged, you, he jeered at the Jews. And that word jeer means to ridicule, and we looked at that uh, particular uh, uh, tactic of opposition, of ridicule last week. Ridicule. The word 
uh, jeered means ridicule or contempt or disdain or sar- sarcasm. By the way, this is not the first time this happened. If you go to chapter 2, verse 17, you see that um, it says, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Well, where was that derision coming from? Well, the, the enemy. You know, Samaria was putting out the word, look at those pathetic Jews. That's chapter 2. Again, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Again, we're going to see it today. Unrelenting. So we looked at ridicule last week. Ridicule can stop the work of God. But as we said last week, you know, when Nehemiah received it, he didn't retaliate. See, if he, re- if he had re- retaliated, if he had spoken up at that point, at that very point, and started arguing with the enemy, oh, no, we're not. Yes, you are. No, you're not. Yes, we are. Or, no, no, we're not. It would have stopped the work. It would just stop the work. He didn't retaliate. All, he, all we find him doing at that point is verse 4, he prayed. And as we said, an imprecatory prayer. In other words, he actually was asking God to, to destroy the enemy. Let God be the one who avenges, like out of Romans 12. So he didn't retaliate, he did pray, and finally, verse 6, so we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Because he didn't focus on retaliation, they kept their minds focused on what they're supposed to be doing, and that is working. And the wall came up half its height. So what is that, half its height? At least 10 foot. Okay, let's say at least 10 foot. Again, we don't know exactly how high. We do know that a lot of those walls, like in the 1500s, were about 40 foot high. So let's just split that in half and give that a half, so a quarter of that, let's say 10 feet. A two and a half mile wall, 10 feet high, half its height. Why? Because he did not, he he approached ridicule properly. You keep your eye on the goal, not on your enemy. By the way, that is so easy to do, and it uh, it is so easy to say, and it's so uh, hard to do. I don't know who your enemy is, and I don't mean... Now, Satan, I'm just saying, maybe you look at someone else, but it's easy to get your mind totally focused on them, on that person. You can even see their face or the situation that you have created or they have created for you. And it's like, no, get your eyes off of them and on what God wants you to do. So opposition by ridicule. And now I want to turn to verse 7. So again, chapter 4, verse 7. And we're going to look at a whole different tactic. And it's the opposition by discouragement. Discouragement. Uh, Discouragement means to lessen the courage or the confidence in someone. Lessen their courage. Many times it is caused because of fear or actually lead to fear. Sometimes fear brings it on, other times, and then it also produces, you know, cause and effect. So again, discouragement or despair. You can say even this, when people are discouraged, many times they get depressed. It's all that type of stuff. Again, it's different. Verse 1 is in a different spot because look at verse 7. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward... And that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. See, this is a different, this is later on in the narrative. 
verses 1 to 6, they thought they were going to be able to suppress them with just ridicule. Now they just, but Nehemiah kept moving. The people kept moving. The wall kept going up. The breaches were being closed. Now all of a sudden, they moved to a different tactic. I'm sure the ridicule kept coming, but now they're trying to discourage in other ways. There's a familiar legend that the devil put his tools up for sale one day. Marking each for public inspection with its appropriate sale price. Now, of these tools were included these such things like this. Hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lying, pride. Laid apart from these was a rather harmless looking but well-worn tool marked at an extremely high price. A buyer pointed to this isolated implement and asked, well, what's the name of that tool? Uh, This is discouragement, the devil replied. And why have you priced it so high? Because it is more useful to me than any other. I can pry open a man's heart with that when I cannot get near to him with the other tools. Once inside, I can make them do whatever I choose. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone, since few people know it belongs to me. The devil's price for discouragement was so high, it is said that this tool was never sold. And he continues to use it to this day on believers to stop the work of God. You ever been like really like moving forward and feeling like God, you know, like almost like the wind in your sails and all of a sudden things start to happen and you become discouraged. And what discouragement does this is this, it can paralyze you. It can stop you right in your tracks to the point where even obvious things that should be done in your life aren't getting done. Because discouragement, again, often is associated with depression and despair. And it just just stops you. It just stops the work. Now again, we're going to be looking at this text from two points of view. One is the cause and the other is the cure. Okay. Now again, I'm pulling things out by the way, not original with me, okay? You know, you start, it's really encouraging when you're reading commentaries and, and they're like saying, yeah, discouragement. And then you read another commentary and said, oh yeah, this is about discouragement. And, you know, but you're going to see that the cause of discouragement and the cure. Now again, the, the cause, the potential cause, because for them, they kept, they kept moving. Let me say this, at the end of the text, they kept building. So you don't have to succumb. Well, let's look at the problem. There's actually two. One has to do with the enemy, and the other has to do with the the loss within the people. And you'll see that in a moment. So the cause, problem number one. There was a conspiracy from the enemy, or a collusion, if you will. They got together. Primarily, it was a threat of violence. By the way, when you're in that situation and the enemies are starting to build, there's becoming more of them. By the way, if you compare verse 1 with verse 7, it's not just Sanballat any longer in Tobiah. Now we have Sanballat, Tobiah, Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. And along with the, um, let's see here, the Arabs would be Gershom. He would be the leader. We, find that, we found that out earlier in, I think, chapter 2. <laughs> Isn't it true that enemies have a tendency to multiply? 
You know, you find yourself, oh, I can deal with that one situation. Oh, now I got that situation, you know. And when I say enemies, you might say, well, what, what's it in the, in the, in the uh, Christian's life? Well, I mean, let's face it, we have uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Each one of them have their own tactics. I mean, the world is pushing a lot of different messages to you. Live for today. Live for yourself. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, make decisions that best fits you, Right? Uh, live for material stuff. By the way, the only thing that there is is whatever you see. I mean, all those different messages. And then you have Satan. One of the big areas as far as is just false religion. And all, again, pushing us away from glorifying God and seeing ourselves as his servants, of, of, but of making, he wants to make us think that we're the masters and we need to be served. So it's that whole selfish thing. And by the way, the flesh comes along and, and totally agrees with those two other enemies. Yeah, it is all about you. It is all about you. It's not about being others, other-oriented. It's about being self-oriented. And so you got all these. And, and you know what? The, when it comes to our lives, we have a tendency to point out one or two, but then the enemies have a tendency. They start to accumulate, and then we get depressed and frustrated. And then there's a tendency to move away from the very group that we should stay connected with, is in, and that's the church. <laughs> and the people that can take care uh, of helping us see reality, because sometimes we are so blind. Isn't that true? Sometimes you can be walking and not even realize where you're at. And you need a friend, or you need a group of friends that can say, you know, you might want to consider the direction you're going, because it's going to lead here, and I don't think that's where you want to lead, be led. So when you get, we find that there's a conspiracy. They've, they've, there's more enemies to Nehemiah in the work in verse 7 than you found in verse, uh, in verse 1. In fact, if you start looking at where they are located, Sanballat and the Samaritans are in the north, Tobiah and the Ammonites are to the east, Gershom and the Arabs are to the south, and the Ashdodites are from the west. They're, they are literally being surrounded. This is no small thing at this point. The wall is going up. It's only half its height. The gates have not yet been uh, built. And now all these enemies <coughs> are coming in collusion and, and, going to, and, and they're going to start putting out the word that we want to destroy you. It's almost like you feel like you're being painted into the wall, into the corner. Verse 8, it says, And they all plotted together. That, the idea is they conspire together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That, by the way, underline the word confusion if you're uh, your version. Because when it's all said and done, that's what's happening. So you get discouraged, you get depressed. But the point is, is there's confusion. Things that you knew before, the, things, the, the disciplines that you knew you should be doing, you get confused about, and then it almost becomes where it's, life is a fog. By the way, I do not believe that they were all going to come together in one big army and attack Jerusalem from four different directions, north, south, east, and west. That would have been a direct uh, assault, as it were, against the king of Persia. King of Persia had, had said they could build the wall, right? Remember chapter 2, Nehemiah approached the king? So what type of tactics would he, they be using here? Guerrilla warfare. Hit and run. It's where they would create confusion, but you wouldn't know exactly who was creating it. It's the worst type. 
But again, that's kind of like us, isn't it, at times? Hit and run. The enemy hits and runs. You talking to somebody innocently and all of a sudden you're in this maybe even argument or something happened and now all of a sudden you know even the relationship's on the line and where did that come from kind of like guerrilla warfare that happens you know i i believe that happens more than we realize you're just watching an innocent show and all of a sudden it's all these images and wait whoa 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 you know the the enemy is really good at the guerrilla type warfare hit and run but but they're all together i mean let's face it They're in collusion with each other. But look at what uh, Nehemiah does, verse 9. And and we prayed, we, not he, we, we. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. At this point in the thing, with this particular problem of the enemy, he just prayed and moved on. I mean, it's so characteristic of him. We've seen him do that before. So he prayed. Not just he, though. We. What do you mean, we? Well, he may even have gotten everybody together. Hey, listen. This is the issue, we're going to pray. But as soon as amen was done, he was back on working. Now you don't think about them. Our God will take care of us. Okay? Keep your eyes focused. But notice, it wasn't just our God was going to take care of us and set a guard as a protection against them. So there's that uh, um, God protecting, but then human responsibility. In fact, that has probably been one of the greatest lessons I've been learning through Nehemiah. You know, we depend on God, but we have a responsibility. He prays and then sets a guard. (laughs) We are to shepherd, but we got to depend on God to be able to see it through. We use our spiritual gifts, but we know that it's God that is the one that's working through us, right? We have to make sure, because sometimes we say, well, if it's going to happen, let God do it. Or sometimes we forget God and we just are doing it all ourselves. But he has a beautiful balance. So that's the, that's the first uh, problem, the conspiracy. The second problem is the loss. Lost by the people of God. Look at the problems. I gave you five of them. First of all, there was a loss of strength. A loss of strength or a lack of strength. Uh, verse 10, the first part, it says, in, Judea, in Judah it was said, and actually the Hebrew means this, uh, Judah said. In other words, this wasn't coming from the enemy. This is what was being said by the people. Judah said this, the strength of those who bear the burdens, the laborers, is failing. The word failing means tottering, stumbling, staggering. The, it's, it was being said in, the, in, in Jerusalem, you know what, we're getting tired. We're getting tired. So not only is the enemy accumulating strength, but now the people themselves are saying, we're getting tired. The strength is failing. The reality was, they were getting tired. Half the project was done, but they still had the other half to complete, plus the gates. You know, have you ever started remodeling a home you tear it out. I mean, I remember this. And then, you, and then you start the project, and boy, that's really cool. You know, now we've got the electric in, and you know, if there's any plumbing needing to happen, and boy, those walls were you know, built in the 1904, so they're crooked. But yeah, we've, you know, um, you know re-studded areas. And, but then you get to a point, it's almost like you hit the wall, and it's like, oh, I am so tired of this. You ever been there? I mean, it's not just the matter of getting that last piece of molding up. 
The tired can happen, you know, a lot quicker than that. And these people were tired, understandably so. So they had a lack of strength. I've talked to a few people who ran marathons. I never have. But they say sometimes, you know, 13, 14, 15 mile mark, you know, and you have to keep moving, I guess. (laughs) But that's where they're at. So a loss of strength. Number two, this is another enemy. I mean, a loss of vision and perspective. Uh, It says there is too much rubble for all the work done and the wall being half completed. There is still all this rubble, this dirt, this debris, this broken stones, this hard, dried chunks of mortar is what he's referring to. Which makes sense, by the way. You know, because when you start building the wall, at first, you know, you're going you're gonna to be able to get some of the stuff out and, you know, start getting the big, big uh, chunks of stone. But then, you know, as you, as you now you're halfway done, well, all that rubble is still there. You know, they have to keep tripping over that stuff. And, and their, their eyes are just focused on the rubble. So... I think that's a loss of vision, or maybe, maybe more particular, a loss of perspective. It's easy to get your eyes on the rubble and not the wall. The wall is what you need to keep your focus on. See, when you lose the perspective, you forget about the project. You become myopic, you know, short-sighted. I can't see beyond this. All I see is this rubble. These broken stones. I think of it. I was thinking of an illustration. I, I think of, because I, I know we have a lot of young families here. Sometimes I think young mothers especially get very short-sighted, you know? I mean, let's face it. A young mother, she's exhausted. Why is she exhausted? Well, understandably so. What does she have? Has to change those diapers. Wipe those noses. Clean the house. And by the way, if you let the kids run for just a few minutes, you'll have to clean the house again. I mean, that gets really tiring. But she forgets, or her, she forgets the perspective of the opportunity she has in raising a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Or as one author said, she may lose the whole sense of fulfillment in the motherhood role because of the current rubbish. End quote. Oh, I think that's so true. She, got, she, has to get her, she has to get her focus off the rubbish. Just the dirty diapers and the runny noses and constant pickup. And start saying, you know what? But wait a second. I've been given the great privilege of being a mother. Of, it, of affecting a life. Of influencing life. And, and I often, you know, I've asked this before. Who has a greater influence in your home? The father or the mother? On the children? Many times it's the mother. At least in my home I know it was. In fact, anytime I get into a little spat with my wife, you can kind of tell the children, all seven of them, rally around the head. (laughs) And the rooster is like sitting there like, okay, chop my head off. (laughs) Anyways, perspective. I don't know why I told you that story. Um, So there's a loss of perspective. There's also a loss of confidence. Confidence. Look at verse, uh, the third part of verse 10. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's a loss of confidence. Actually, when you lose strength and you lose perspective, you lose confidence. It kind of goes together. 
See, they lost their, they were wearied, they were disillusioned, and now they're like not even sure if they can do it. Wait, what are you talking about? In a very few days, you have built up half the wall. Do you see what the point is? Do you see how they lost perspective? In a few days, you did half of the job. Now, sure, the gates are yet to be done and the rest of the half of the wall. But do you understand the miracle that has happened to you? I I think sometimes we have to, in a moment of discouragement, you have to step back, take out a piece of paper, and Lord, give me understanding of how you're working in my life. Help me just to see the blessings. Because the fog is starting to overwhelm me. Help me to see all the blessings that has happened in my life. I mean, verse 6, it says, the people had a mind to work. Now all of a sudden, well, you know, not be able to rebuild the wall. They were losing their motivation. They were losing steam. They weren't staying on the course. And it can happen very, very quickly. (laughs) I find this, that you know, I, I come to church, and, and, and depending on the week, but then, you know, I always leave either church or men's prayer, you know, just what a blessing, you know, I'm, oh, yeah, Lord, thank you, thank you for your people, because they've ministered to my heart, and, but you know, it's, it can go very quickly. By Tuesday, some of you could be like ready to give up. But, he, but hasn't it hasn't been great, wasn't it just great worship? Wasn't that really great? Isn't it great to get into God's word and be with God's people? Isn't it an encouragement when you're here? Is it? Amen? A little bit? Amen? I know I'm not in the South, but is that true? But isn't it true you can just kind of like, you know, be in the despair pretty quick? I was talking to one of the people from our home group, my home group, last just Wednesday, and as she was leaving, she made the statement, something to this effect, I'm so glad for home group, because in the middle of the week, I just need to have that, I don't know if she used this word, but like, you know, I, I need to have that truth and that perspective, right? I need to get readjusted, as it were. Oh, that's so true, it's so true. So there was a loss of confidence, and then there was a loss of security, verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, this is what the enemies were saying. This is a loss of security, which led to fear. The enemy was putting out the word, we're going to attack, but you're not going to know where. Like I said, guerrilla warfare, it's on our timetable, and you're our sitting ducks, as it were. And so that was getting out, and now there was a scare tactics, intimidation, impending doom, what if? By the way, sometimes you don't even have to have a person say that. You ever live in the what if? The what if? What if a Republican doesn't become president? <laughs> what if we don't regain the Senate? <laughs> what if the dollar devalues? What if Russia takes over Ukraine? By the way, let's always remember this one very important point. Whatever the world is doing has no effect at all on God's kingdom. None. The world can do anything it wants, and it has absolutely no effect on the kingdom of God. But see, this loss of security and accompanying fear can again be very crippling and paralyzing. Fear can be very crippling, paralyzing. And yet, what does uh, Timothy say? God has not given us the what, spirit of fear. He hasn't given us that, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now think about that. Power to do, love 
as far as how we respond and a sound mind focus. That's what God gives. That's what God gives. Proverbs, just, this is kind of a side, but Proverbs 13, 12 says this, Hope deferred, in other words, hope postponed, makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. But where do you find that hope? Do you find it in your circumstances? Do you find it in your people and relationships? Or do you find it in the Lord? Because again, he's the only consistent one. All the other things are not. So we find hope, we find security. But again, sometimes we find them in the wrong spots. We find them in our work. We find them in our friends. We find them in our circumstances. In one sense, you could call them our security blankets. Okay? See, we have our security blankets. Our roots are in those things, not in the Lord. Now, we would say it's the Lord because it's unspiritual to say otherwise. But the reality is it's in those things. Now, what does God do? Well, God has a tendency to seek to unclaw our grip on those security blankets. When your sense of security has been shattered, and if the security is in those things, then you become discouraged. But God is at work. He is loosening our security on those things and directing us to trust in him. You know, the great uh, preacher, and I say great because he just was able to accomplish so much in his life. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, wrote this. And, and, and this is a perspective on discouragement because what he was saying that here is that actually the discouragement led to a spiritual purpose. That's why I'm reading this. He said this, quote, Before any great advance, uh, achievement, any great achievement, and, and he was referring to his, in his life, Some measure of depression or discouragement is very usual for me. What do you mean? Such was my experience when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me. What do you mean appalled? He just couldn't understand it. Like, why would people be flocking after me? And the thought of the career which seemed to to open up so far from elating me, making me really happy, cast me into the lowest depth. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude, end quote. But then he went on, and and I'm just going to summate. Because he was realizing he was being called beyond his ability. Called beyond, in other words, his calling was greater than his, his human ability, and that's what made him depressed. Maybe every major ministry begins in some respects. Because what God is doing is saying, listen, you can't depend on your own strength here. Now, sometimes it's not a calling to a ministry. Sometimes it's the calling that he sets you in, and it's a, it's a, maybe it's a health issue. And now all of a sudden, everything you've been always able to deal with on your own, it just has kicked the slats right out from under you. I, I can't do it, Lord. I cannot deal with this. And he, you know what he would say? That's why I sent it. That's why I allowed it. Let's use that word. I allowed it for that reason, so that your security would not be in yourself. Okay? Not self-sufficient. And then look at the final. I mean, these are all losses, things that the people were, were dealing with. A, fi- a loss of a friends backing, verse 12. And at the time... The Jews who lived near them came from all directions. Now, these are people that weren't in Jerusalem, came to them and said to us ten times, like over and over and over again, you must return to us. 
It's kind of like the uh, son or daughter that tells the parents, God has called me to do this, and because it's not in their realm of comfort, the parents, the parents tell the child, you know what, you need to really think this through long and hard. Well, they need to think it through long and hard. And then discourages the son or daughter from doing what God has definitely put on the son or daughter's heart. These are friends, and they are friends, but they were, you know, you need to come, forget the wall. Forget Jerusalem. You need to return to us. So this discouragement came not only from the enemy, but it came from a lot of lost strength, loss of perspective, confidence, security, and then the friends backing. I, I showed you all that just to say this. Discouragement in your life can come from many directions, right? Well, let's look at the response, the cure. How can we deal with discouragement? First of all, verse 13, unify your efforts towards a goal. Unify your efforts. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans. By the way, notice the word there. With their swords, with their spears, and with their bows. He was moving towards the internal motivation there, especially when he said their clans. He stationed the people by their clans. In other words, hey, you're going to fight harder if your son or daughter is right there, right? But the, the point of verse 13 is this. He unified their efforts towards a goal. He, he got them unified. You know, every time you read in the New Testament that, that we are Christ's sheep, but, but we are part of a flock. He is the shepherd. That's a unifying principle. That we are uh, the branches, but he is the, what? Vine, unifying principle. That we are living stones, but he is the chief cornerstone. That we are parts of his body, but, but it's a body. That's a unifying principle, right? I mean, all those things. He got them unified. I stationed the people by their clans. We're part of the family of God. When I get discouraged, when you get discouraged, you just got to think of it as terms. Well, what am I doing in the body? Am I, am, I, am I looking towards what God has given as a resource to keep me focused on this path, the body of Christ? Am I looking to, to do the, you know, the unifying effort? So unify your efforts towards a goal. He, he got them not just, again, thinking individually, he got them thinking corporately. That's the first thing. Number two, very, very important. He turned their focus to the Lord. And I looked and arose and I said. All in, the, in the, just the factual. It wasn't uh, like uh, uh, intensive form. He just like this was, he kind of was like this. Like this is what I would normally do. I looked, I arose, and I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people. What did he tell them? Well, Nehemiah took charge. He's saying I did this. By the way, leaders lead. And when a group of people are discouraged, it better be the leaders that stand up and say, okay, let's go in this direction. So he gave them very clear direction. He he turned their focus to the Lord. And the first thing he says, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. By the way, doesn't that sound like a rebuke? Now these people are discouraged. They're ready to quit. Come on, DMI, they don't need a rebuke. No, sometimes that's what we do need. It wasn't harsh. It wasn't in the intensive form. It was just a, a, the normally just saying, listen, don't fear them. Do not be afraid of them. 
fact, I think of uh, Jesus who said in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear, now that is in the imperative, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and Hades. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what we got to, actually, the word is hell. So the first thing that uh, Nehemiah does as a good leader, first thing he does is he leads. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is a rebuke. He rebukes and he says, no, no, do not uh, be afraid of them. Look at the second thing. He goes from a rebuke to an encouragement. Remember the Lord. Now that is a command. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Awesome is the idea of revered. In other words, don't put your focus on the enemy. Keep your focus on the Lord. Don't fear man. Fear the Lord. He's great and awesome. You remember the Lord. You remember the Lord because he uses the word remember. When, when these things happen, like what does it mean to remember the Lord? Well, you remember the Lord when you call to mind what? Who he is. Who he is. Who is the Lord? He is faithful. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. You know, his attributes. That's remembering the Lord. Not only that, what he has said. You remember the Lord, not only of who he is, by the way, very important characteristic. He's truth, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that God had his truth. What he says is truth. It always will be true. So based on that, now what has he said? He says, uh, call upon me. He says that if you put your focus on me, I will give you peace. I will give you joy. If you walk with me, I will fill you by, your, by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit's characteristics will be in your life. See, we have to focus not only on who he is, but what he has said, and then what he has done. So that's what they're called to do. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome in all those different characteristics. Like in Isaiah 26, it says, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because, he, because we trust in him. Because we trust in him. You ever find yourself in that swirl? <laughs> and it's just like, it, but as soon as you say, Lord, you're right, I've got my eyes on the rubble. I've got my eyes on the enemy. And you step back and you confess because you've been rebuked by his spirit. And now all of a sudden, what does he do? As soon as you start walking with him, it's filled by his spirit. What, is, what do you experience? Peace. Have you, ever had, have you ever gone from just total anxiousness to peace within seconds because you've just said, Lord, I need, you to, I need you to walk with me. I need you to fill me. Or another way to remember the Lord is like Psalms 18. I will love you, O Lord. Now notice the, uh, the um, pronoun. My strength. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So it's not just that the Lord, you are over here and you're strong, you're a shield, you're a rock, but you're mine. You're mine. So no matter what happens, I, I had this picture, I don't know exactly whatever happened to it, but it was a, it was of a, it was, it was a lighthouse. And there was this, apparently the lighthouse was out partly into the ocean. And there was this big wave. And it was hitting the lighthouse. I mean, it was literally engulfing it. But from the doorway, there was a man standing there. Okay, so there's a lighthouse. The man is standing on this side. And the wave is coming up like this. And I, Man, what a picture of peace. 
just the agitations of this world, but he is protected by the lighthouse, you know. So, remember the Lord. Don't look at the rubbish. Don't look at the debris. Don't look at your problems. I mean, you can deal with your problems, but you need to be looking to the Lord. And then, finally, he gave them a motivator. In fact, this is the third, um, the third cure, as it were. Uh, not only unify your efforts, not only turn your focus to the Lord, but commit to critical action. Commit to critical action. He says in, in uh, verse 14, and, and fight for your brothers. Now again, notice your. Your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Again, that's that internal motivation. We see the, this in chapter 3 when, he's, when he set them and sometimes the priest was set near the temple. Why? There's an internal motivation. I'm going to be building right where I work. And here he, he uses an internal motivation. He says, sure, the enemy's there, but I want you to fight. Not just for yourself, but for your brothers and sons and daughters and wives and homes. Let me say something here. Sometimes when it comes to discouragement and depression, sometimes... Discouraged and depressed people are often, I'm going to use the word often because not always, I want to be careful here. Don't come up to me after and say, you made a general statement. I'm saying often. Discouraged and depressed people are actually lazy people. They get discouraged, they get depressed, and then they stop. They stop serving, they stop ministering, they just stop life. And yet here, He doesn't allow that to happen. By the way, why do they stop? Because they become self-centered. They become self-focused. What does he say? No, listen, we got a job to do. By the way, it's like this. We have a job to do, and it doesn't matter how you feel, we need to get this job done. And so you move past your feelings and to what you're supposed to do. So you commit to critical, vital action. Look at verse 15. When the enemy heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. See, it was a group effort. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's, not get, let's get our minds off the enemy and onto what we should be doing. And they all went back to work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. And half held the spear. Half was builders. Half were fighters. <laughs> they held the spear. Shields, bows, coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house. In other words, the leadership was right there. The leadership wasn't over here. You know, guys, we need to be protected, but you guys keep working on the wall. Everybody was there. Which I think is, again, that balance. What is the balance? Divine protection, but accepting human responsibility. God's going to provide, but get your spears out. (laughs) God's going to provide, but keep your swords at your side. Divine protection. And yet, accepting human responsibility. It's like the Revolutionary War soldier used to say, trust in God, but keep the powder dry. World War II, this, this was the slogan of World War II. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. <laughs> so the first thing is balance between divine protection and human responsibility. The second is this, there's a time to battle and a time to build. Verse 17 who were building the wall, those who carried burdens, were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work which with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. 
In fact, that's where um, Charles Spurgeon, in, when he was a pastor, he, he put out a paper called The Sword and the Trowel. That's where it came from. Carry your sword, but keep building. Keep doing both. I think of another great illustration, John Bunyan. He fought for the truth, that's what landed him in jail. But while in jail, he didn't stop fighting for the truth. In fact, he kept building what? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. So it was like he, uh, John Bunyan was both a builder and a fighter. And he knew the difference. By the way, sometimes people just fight. <laughs> Some people just don't know how to build. They're always looking for the next problem. They never actually get into building. They're just like, you know, maybe they think they have the, uh, you know, the gift, not of discernment, but of criticism. But we have to be careful. We have to be builders, but sometimes we do have to fight. Fight for the truth. Fight for, you know, the people of God. So, how about number four? Determine a rallying point. Determine a rallying point. That's going to get you out of discouragement. Look at verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. Rally to us. Now the place, in other words, wherever you hear the bugle, the trumpet, come. But what is the actual principle here? The principle is this. Don't fight your battle alone. There's a big wall, he says. That's the first part. There's a big wall. But you know what? If the enemy sneaks up us at this point, we're going to... And you better come a-running. Why? Because you don't fight your battle alone. That's what I mean by determining a rallying point. In the body of Christ, what is it? That's the local church. Don't fight your battle alone. We need the body. We need, we need close friends. Don't ever say this, I don't need anybody. Or to say it this way, you want to avoid discouragement? Get connected. You want to have another layer of protection from the enemy? Get connected. You want to grow even more in your Christian life? Get connected. What do you mean get connected? Get connected to the church, the body of Christ, a care group. Men's prayer, women's prayer. I can't go to men, women's prayer, but the men's prayer. By the way, men's prayer has been phenomenal. If you're a guy, you want to have a great time Saturday morning. 7.30 at my place, or Billy's at 9, or, or Mike's at uh, 7.30. But the point is get connected. There is a dynamic that God has built within the body of Christ that you have to be together. That's the rallying point. Elisha had his, I mean, Elijah had his Elisha, and David had his Jonathan, and we need each other. How about the fifth one? Develop a serving other mindset. Verse 21, so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us. That they may be a guard for us. You know what that is? That is serving other mindset. That's what that is right there. It's not just that we're important, fight for your home, but that they were, one group was serving the other group. If you want to get out of discouragement, develop a serving others mindset. In other words, an other-oriented mindset. Charles Swindoll writes this. Do you want to know how to be miserable? You want a recipe for miserable, depressed, discouraged? Be like the late Howard Hughes. 
Live only for yourself. Use I, me, and my as often as possible. Turn all your love inward. Think only about your own needs, your own desires, your own wants, and your own pleasures. Refuse to love and be loved. End quote. Yeah, yeah. You want to, you want to be discouraged? You want to be miserable? Live for yourself, right? I was on uh, the web's web and I was uh, looking at a particular seminary. And their motto is this. The seminary's motto is this. We train men as if lives depended on it. Because they were dead on serious that they were training lives. They were training men as, as though lives depended on it. But I thought, you know, you know what would be a great motto at Alfred Allman? This motto. We serve others as if lives depended on it. Because they do. We serve others as though lives depended on it. So develop a serving others mindset. And then finally, exercise constant vigilance. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. I think the King James says something like this. He only, they only took it off for washing. But the idea was this. They were vigilant. Constantly ready for the enemy to attack. If you, want to be on, if you want to live in a way that you're not going to be discouraged, you have to have constant vigilance. Constant vigilance. Well, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. Remember this? Watch and pray. Watch. That's vigilance. And pray lest you uh, enter into temptation. Why? Why? Because the Spirit... Oh, the Spirit is what? Oh, we're, the Spirit is really willing, but the flesh. Very weak. Very weak. And though the Spirit is all excited for the Lord and His things and His plan and praise God and I want to walk with you, Jesus, the flesh can very easily even just take praying. <laughs> yes, Lord, I'm going, to pray for, I'm going to pray 15 minutes. And you look at the clock and three minutes has gone by. And by seven minutes you're ready to die because the flesh is weak. But he says, watch and pray. Be vigilant. Be vigilant because you can right now say, Lord, I just want to walk with you. That's my biggest desire in my heart. But the enemy can come and, and by Tuesday you can be like, oh, oh, this is so hard. This, this Christian life is impossible. Well, actually it is, isn't it? To really love like Jesus loves. To really have peace without circumstance and joy without circumstance and to have self-control, which is probably one of the hardest. Yeah, but wait a second. Jesus said, but I'm going to send you the helper. He's going to be in you, and all he, all he wants is you to be controlled by him, right? So again, no matter where you find yourself, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith and trust in him, the Spirit of God is seeking to work through you to be more like Christ, right? He's the one that's working through it. But we have to be willing to submit to him. Or to say it this way, you're as spiritual as you, as you want to be. You're as spiritual as you want to be. Because he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us the spirit in full measure. It's in the sense of willing to use us. That I mean in that sense, not in like the Lord said. But the, the reality is we are as spiritual as we want to be. Because we determine whether or not we're really going to be uh, filled by the spirit or not. So I trust that you will be. And I trust that you're not discouraged. And if you are, it's as simple as, Lord, change me. I just want to walk with you. I want to walk with you. Let's stand as we worship him.